Recording? Yeah, recording. This is Mom's Basement Podcast, episode 58. Kyle Simmons, Simons, Kyle Simons edition. See, I made the mistake already. Three seconds. <laughs> no I screwed up his name. Where we ask Kyle the most important question. What's it like to live in the future? <laughs> or about the, the KK Simons? Yeah, what is the what is the second K? Well, <laughs> like before back when Gmail was just starting up, I had a Kyle Simons at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. They got hacked. So I got K Simons at gmail.com. Got hacked. <laughs> so I ended up with KK Simons. And oh. that, I guess no one ever wanted it, so Right. Oh, wow. So I kept making the joke, if I get hacked again, then I'll be in deep water. Right. It'll be yes. KKK Simons. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our longtime listener, oh wait, that's Alex, may know that we playtested Alex's, Alex, we playtested Kyle's game, Magicians, a few months ago, when it was yeah. in its infancy. And we had a lot of good things to say about it, and we had some constructive constructive criticism as well. And then we kind of sat back and forgot about it, to be honest. We were like, well, this was a cool game, but we played a lot of games on the podcast, and some of them see finished versions, others um, languish in purgatory for years and years and years. I'm looking at you, Dan Maruschak. Oh, a Kickstarter for, um, I forgot the name of his game. Final Hour of a Story Age. Story Age already. It's ready. But anyway. So, then a few weeks ago, Kyle contacts us and let us know that he's going to do a Kickstarter for Magicians. And I said, oh, cool. Maybe you should come back on the podcast. We'll talk about it. And, you know, I thought, hey, maybe... It was a good game. I thought it'll probably get funded. It'll probably get, you know, two thousand, three thousand dollars, and that's pretty solid for an indie RPG. Before we started recording, Magicians just topped ten thousand fucking dollars. So congratulations, Kyle. Thanks. Yeah, it's I didn't see it coming either. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I. I still don't really know how it's happening. Magic? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that was a bad joke. Okay. So, Alex, I know that before we really dug into an interview with Kyle, you wanted to ask him something. Oh, no, I actually didn't want to ask him anything. I just wanted to, to congratulate him and inform him that um, he's been introduced, you know, inducted to a very special like, you know, elite category of people. And then I'm going to start it today. Yes. And what category? Okay. All right. So, as we all know, a, a, a huge portion of people in the RPG community are either plain or fugly. There are a select few that are that ridiculously good looking. Gorgeous. That we must congratulate them. Like,. Whenever like we see it. Lander Club or something? <laughs> so, I have created the hunk of fame. 
Okay. No, 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 no. All right. So I just want to let you know about that because, you know, this is, I wanted to start this up, you know, to let everyone know it exists and to let you know that you are the second person to be inducted into the hunk of fame. The number one person. There I ask the first. Yeah. The first person is Dan Marusha. <laughs> of course. Oh. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and and that's it, really. That's all I wanted to let you guys know about. Dan does have the jaw, I have to say, and the beard. <laughs> well, he definitely has the beard. But I have to say, Kyle, if we were to do a men of indie RPGs calendar, you would be Mystery January and probably most of the other months, too. And maybe we'd use Vincent Baker in a Speedo for October. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh. Get okay. a theme going, maybe put some cats in front of our uh, privates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's that, That's the only uncomfortable thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> the, hopefully that will be the only thing. <laughs> so Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about Magicians? Why don't we give you a few minutes to just straight up pitch the game to our audience? Okay, to, or, okay well... Magicians is um, it's a game about telling uh, coming-of-age stories like you'll find in Harry Potter or Wizard of Mercy or The Magicians by Lev Grossman, and uh, it's set in modern day. And all the student or all the players are students that go to a, a college for magic. And um, yeah, the mechanics behind the game are uh, designed to help players learn a language. So it's tied in with Korean. And there are Korean elements in the setting as well, like Korean uh, superstitions and culture and mythology. But it's mostly modern-day settings so people can get into it. And then there's mechanics involved to help with storytelling. And, um, of course, the main thing is using Korean to cast spells. Yeah, and, that, and that's my pitch. And that is a good pitch, pitch, I think. And that's really what I wanted to pick up on is the mechanics of the game. Because we... We, we basically talk about two things on this podcast. One is random bullshit, and the other is game mechanics. Mm-hmm. So I really want to, I guess, get at, maybe, maybe more than anything else, first of all, like the inspiration behind that those mechanics. Like, what made you decide that you wanted to make a game that was both magical high school and about teaching someone a language as they play. Okay. Well, uh, I guess the very beginning of the idea was when I was teaching English here in Korea. And um, what happened was I had a group of kids and, um, well, uh, a bunch of them, like bullying is a big problem in Korea, actually. So... Um, I didn't know it at the time, but a lot, of, a bunch of the kids would actually stay after school with me to like hang out and talk and stuff. And I just, I don't know, I just thought they had extra time on their hands or something. I probably should have known better at the time. But um, it turned out that they were getting bullied, so they were actually like staying behind while like their seniors and stuff were leaving. And my my principal of the school, he asked me like, well, why don't you set up some kind of an after school thing? Um, so I did, I just wanted to, it it wasn't really, it was kind of like off the books. So it was just more like a fun hangout time and, you know, do casual stuff. So I set up, um, an RPG 
And when I found out about um, this bullying and stuff, I kind of got like these ideas swirling around in my head. And I had just read um, The Magicians by Lev Grossman. So I came up with this idea that, that um, I don't know, I thought it might be like cathartic or something for them to like kind of trick them into talking about these issues that they had because they wouldn't really, it, it's not something Koreans do really well, like opening up and talking about themselves, um, especially in another language, of course. So, um, yeah, I got, uh, I came up with this idea that when they told me these stories, um, well, the fact that they're role-playing kind of like puts you out of the character, right. and like this has been used in language learning forever, right? There's always that role-playing element, like you know, you're the you're the waiter and you're the the uh, the patron, and you have to order and stuff and whatever. But right. I just wanted to, you yeah. know, get it going in a little deeper, and I thought if they could get that disconnect, that they would be able to talk about things easier because it's like. You know, it's what people always do, right? Like, my friend has this problem or whatever, right? Right, right. So, um, yeah, I did that, and I had them make some characters really quick, and um, we did a school because I wanted to be like, they're, you know, just parallel it right with their life kind of thing, but with that slight veil of them having a different character. And um, so whenever they told me stories of, like, the bad stuff that was happening to them in school, I would give them points, and then... Um, when I would like introduce some complications later on, and then with those points, they could like uh, cast spells or resolve the conflicts and that kind of stuff. So that's when it really started up. And then I really wanted to, like, I, I thought it was a really cool idea and I wanted to run with it. But uh, this was this was a while ago, and it was before even like uh, dictation apps and Siri and all that stuff were even on my mind. So I, it kind of just I just kind of set it aside because I didn't really know how I could implement it with a different language and not be like, uh, like I still kept it going, but it was more just as in the classroom activities with teacher led and that kind of thing. Right. And then, um, I just remember reading some articles later on about, um, Siri and, um, Android's also getting a, a similar thing called Magell. And they're, that they were going to be Korean capable soon. And I just, I don't know, I guess something just kind of clicked in my head. So I started researching about it and found like there's all these free apps. So I tried them out and a lot of them like work well and they kind of like adapt to you and learn with you and stuff too. Um, but at the same time, they require like a certain level of pronunciation and fluency to work. So yeah, from there, I just kind of implemented that and then I ran with it. And then as you guys know, it was, um, it was still like a pretty high barrier to entry, right? Like it was still yeah. like requiring alphabet, uh, well, the writing system, and it required uh, learning a whole bunch of stuff beforehand. So as you guys suggested that I implement something like a first step to that process, and then uh, I did that, and then with all the play testing that we went through, um, a lot, I had like a group of first-time gamers, and the biggest problem for them. Um, like they enjoyed the the language the language learning element to it and everything, but they had a lot of problems just coming up with story spontaneously, like framing scenes and putting people into it and these mechanics. Um, so from that, I came up with the the card mechanics to it, and uh, yeah, more playtesting and from there it's just being refined more and more, and it it got to a point that I thought. Uh, be cool to do a Kickstarter. 
Yeah. And the rest is history, I guess. Right, right. Well, that's, I mean, I thought there were a lot of uh, really interesting little things in that story, and I, I want to take some of them apart. But first, I want to give uh, give Rudy and Alex a chance to ask you anything they might want to ask. Uh, Alex? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass it on to you. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um... So what have your uh, what has been your experience with some um, ESL programs that uh, use some of those type of um, role playing s- scenarios? Because I, I do remember there there have been a few uh, games in the past that have been strictly an educational background, like you know from like a schooling. Mm-hmm. I, I have no, I have known several games that have attempted RPG like symptoms there. Uh, what mm-hmm. have you experienced in uh, in that in that realm? Um, actually, in my case, I, I never really tried to implement it, like, beyond the traditional method of, like, it's just one of those activities in the book kind of thing. Like, you'll have, like, uh, say, I guess the most standard procedure would be, like, a conversation that you read through with the students, and then they would pick apart key target vocabulary and grammar. Right, I'm trying to find a from that. That. Yeah, and from that you build a scenario where they have to use that, right? So, you know, you know, basic stuff like introductions or that kind of thing. And then, but it was just kind of, you know, in the book and what we did. And I never really thought about uh, turning it into a game or something more until, um, yeah, until I had that after school program thing going on. And I'm even, like, fairly new to gaming in general. I didn't even start playing RPGs until uh, I came to Korea several years ago. So, And that was when 4th edition just hit. So that's actually something I wanted to ask you about, was the RPG culture that exists or doesn't exist in Korea. Is there a really robust yeah. RPG culture? Is it similar to ours? Do they have a lot? Is it an instance where, you know... They play a lot of the same trade games we play, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons and GURPS or whatever. Or do they have their own kind of marketplace with their own games? Um, no, not at all, actually. Um, in Korea, the only published licensed RPG that has a translation is GURPS. Really? And I only know of one fan-made RPG. Um, and it's very light and freeform and not very crunchy at all. Um, yeah, the, there is a small little culture around it though. Um, like, like people in that culture know, they got into it, um, like in the nineties, um, when like magazines were publishing D and D type stuff. And I think even more of them got into it because of the, the close, uh, relationship with Japan. Um, Japan's got a lot of RPGs and a lot of just, culture going on over there so a lot of people get that get into it are getting into it because of their uh interest in japan like the their the manga and um there are things called replays um where it's basically just a a story being told of an rpg session so it's basically like a transcript and then there's like illustrations and um, stuff to, um, I don't know, just notes to say, like, this is what happened here, or, like, just small stuff like that, and people will read these, and then they'll get interested in the stories being told, and then they'll, you know, it's kind of like the gateway into it. 
Um, but RPG, like if you say RPG in Korea, they just assume you're talking about computer games. Huh. Um, there's a there's a really small community online, um, but uh, and they do game, um, and they there's lots of fan translations for free RPGs on the net, like um, you know, like Lady Blackbird and that kind of stuff. Um, just simple stuff that people can get into um, easily with like two pages kind of thing, because it is fan translation, so it's still a fair amount of work. Right. Right. But yeah, Koreans in general are not uh, not as open as you and as like Western culture, right? Like how they perceive themselves is kind of like based on how others see them, right? Right. So they're very sensitive to the to those issues, like how people see them or how they behave. So right. it's not. Um, it's not an easy thing for them to get into, I don't think. Right, which would make something like experimenting with your identity in the way that RPGs allow you to experiment with your identity almost unthinkable or a major faux pas in a lot of ways. Not that yeah. even in our society, you know, there is a certain faux pas attached to those sorts of things. I know I was walking home this afternoon and I guess there's a major anime con going on in Manchester because I was walking past all these people in costumes and I thought oh okay I guess some kind of con is going on but there was also like a crowd of people who had gathered just to gawk at them like oh my god that guy's dressed like a Dragon Ball Z character you know so there's uh, yeah. that kind of stigma there even, even in our society that sense that you've crossed some kind of boundary of acceptable social behavior yeah in korea like japanese culture is big because we're really close right so there are anime conventions every month like there's a huge one every month and there's like uh manga being sold and there's there's some cosplay not like like a lot or anything but there's definitely some and um uh, lots of anime and manga and that kind of stuff but um as far as I know, uh, I haven't really seen any, like, they're called TRPGs in Korea, tabletop RPGs. I haven't seen much of that. So, Rudy, you've been kind of quiet here. Yeah, well, I'm wondering, since you say that uh, RPGs aren't so big there, mm-hmm. um, with magicians, were you, was that kind of one impetus to get magicians going to maybe start a community or start a Um, I really, yeah, it's definitely a goal of mine. Um, At some point, I would really like to do a website that connects uh, Korean GMs with um, players that are looking to learn Korean with magicians. I think it would be really cool to uh, get a community going around that. Um, I'm looking at also doing a kind of play-by-post style on the website, but that has voice capabilities, so you can actually send, like, voice snippets back and forth. Oh, wow, that would be pretty oh, cool. So that'd be really cool, but the the web designers I've talked to are basically saying, like, a lot of custom coding, which equals yeah. a lot of dollars, so right. I'm not sure. Yeah. But it's definitely a cool idea that I'd like to do. Cool. Yeah, that does sound like a pretty cool idea. Now, talking about mechanics, we've talked a little bit about the Korean language mechanics, language spellcasting system. But and I've said this before and I'll say it again. One of the strongest things about this game is how well it functions even with all that aside. 
even when all the the great big even if you take all the great big innovations out of the game you still have a very solid mechanical foundation there and one thing that i really think works wonderfully is the starry card mechanic that you set up that basically okay. allows you to create components of the game before you begin the game and to draw them and play and integrate them into the game as they come up which i think is i think something that really i really enjoy about that is the fact that okay whenever you start you, there's always a tension when you're sitting down to play an rpg between um between writer's block or role player's block you know that moment sure, sure. suddenly run out of ideas oh yeah one end and the and the sort of feeling that the game has been planned in advance scripted in advance on the other mm, end yeah. you don't want to be on either side of that equation sure. you don't want to be playing a game and then have it stall out while people struggle to look for ideas for how to play to ha- how to continue the game and you don't want to be playing a game that feels like you're just going through a bunch of pre-planned motions walking through yeah, a definitely plot and i think these gm cards which suggest ideas as the game go along is the perfect kind of balance between those two extremes. So if you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um yeah, it's something that uh, I'm not even really sure how like I came up with it, but it just kind of clicked for me when I wanted to um like I wanted I knew I wanted input from the players and I know I wanted them to kind of get involved as well. So that's why as um I've got it set up to be like a round robin GM. Like if so, everyone can be added into the story, and then they're using other people's uh, input as well. And if you do it in such a way that you've only you only know the elements that you've written down, it's kind of even more interesting because um, everyone has a different idea of like where the story is gonna go, right. because they only know what they've written. So um, they kind of have that in their mind, and then when they draw the card, they're like, okay, so this is where I see the story going. And then when the next player takes a GM turn and they get a card or they uh, incorporate other cards as well, uh, they've got a different story going on too. So it just makes for this really organic, fun process. And I, one thing I really don't like um, in a game is having to prep a lot because I, I started with uh, D&D 4th Edition and it was just a monster. And... Um, I really like the card mechanics here because it actually forces you not to prep because oh. you can't. Right. <laughs> so it works really well because there will be no expectations too. So it automatically sets this mood in the beginning that you're in a casual atmosphere, you're going to have fun. Um, it doesn't really matter like what story you're telling because it could, it's going to change on the next turn. And then there's, there's also the, the matter of the pacing mechanics which is um, which is pretty fun to play with too. Like um, knowing how many points to put on a card. Like if you're only if you only want to play like for an hour or something, you can change how many points are go on a card and how quickly these elements are resolved. And that also changes how the story is paced and um, how many uh, uh, different types of scenes are introduced as well. Like if you're building up to a big thread or if just a whole bunch of stuff is happening every scene, that kind of thing. Now, with the card mechanic, 
do you imagine that, let's say you were going to play a long-term campaign of magicians, mm -hmm. would you normally make a new deck every session? Or would you I do, expect yeah. the deck to take it through like a five or six session story arc? Or um, You could do it that way. But what I do is I make a new deck every time. And what players can do is if they like cool stuff that was happening last game, just work that into the story either A, through the narrative, or B, put it on a card and you'll see it come up, right? Right, right, yeah. Or, like you said, you could, like, if you really want a slow burn, uh, you could just put really high point levels and then just uh, reduce them slowly over time and then just keep them on the table and remember where you were when you leave off and you could keep going. But um, I think it's more fun to make a new deck every time because certain elements that you may want to just, you know, keep as part of the backstory or has already finished... Uh, you can kind of refresh and add new elements or, you know, incorporate them in a different way. Right, right. All right. Um, well, I wanted to, to know about this because I saw in your uh, your video there that you had a copy of Burning Wheel in the background. Oh, uh, no. How, I do. What is your uh, preferred style of playing games? Because that, that, that can become a – that can become either like a crutch – or uh, you know something that you, it can be something that can hold designers back, based on what they prefer, mm -hmm. because they may end up like forcing their style of play into a game that doesn't belong sure. in the design. Sure. So that's why I was wondering what what is what is your preferred method of uh, playing? Um. Well, the thing. Okay. Well, I'll give you a little bit of background. I started with fourth edition, and um, like it was fun for a while. But I really didn't like prep, and I didn't like combats taking forever. And so I started looking at other RPGs and what's out there. And I think I think it was Burning Wheel that I got into right after that, and Fate, and these different ideas. Um, so I started adding like experience. I basically kept D and D, but kind of kept hacking at it until it kind of really didn't resemble much of D and D, but. You played it the way everyone else does. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I, I added like experience keys to it and aspects, and uh, I added a card deck that I custom made too. So like when they hit a an aspect negatively, they could draw this card and it would do something. Um, I added uh, tactile elements, like if uh, if they were doing a challenge. Uh, and um, the thief was, like, trying to get into a door or something like that, and he failed his role. I made him do something out of game um, to, uh, like, while he was trying to figure something out, uh, all the other players would kind of, like, have to hold off monsters and that kind of stuff. Um, and then we just kind of... Oh, yeah, after that I did Cthulhu Tech. I don't know if you did that, if you've heard of that game. Yes, we have. Yep. Yeah. And I had... There are some famous elements to it, I believe. Right. Ruth and I had a very negative experience with Cthulhu Tech. That had more to do okay. with the GM of the game than anything else. But we're definitely familiar with it anyway. Yeah. Well, um, I ran that uh, in a campaign for almost a year with, like, seven players. And it, it, was, it was actually really awesome. Um, and then after that... Um, 
we did Burning Wheel. Yeah, we really got into it. I love the idea of player-driven um, storytelling and goals and stuff. So that's, I think Burning Wheel was the thing that really changed perspective on what I want in an RPG, what I want to get out of it in terms of um, prep and input and collaboration and that kind of thing. So that's the main reason I put in the video because I kind of see it as like the key moment or like the, the pivot in the way that I play um, RPGs. But um, once you get into fight and range and cover, you're just like, oh, crap, I don't want to do this. <laughs> right. So uh, it's awesome, and I, I love the mechanics and stuff behind it. Um, I just don't I, – I, it got bogged down pretty quick, same as, like, fourth edition and stuff. So right. I just kind of started reading all these other kind of stuff. So I guess if nowadays it's, it's, it's that where I, like, almost no prep – and I like collaborative storytelling first and foremost. I don't want to know what's going to happen. I want input from everybody. I want everyone to have a good time. And um, I want it to be easy, <laughs> the whole process to be easy. Yeah, It's funny how that works, isn't it? The way that so many of the designers I've spoken to or, you know, read blog posts by or whatever – begin their life by mutilating D&D. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you're dissatisfied with D&D, so you take the knife to it and you just cut it apart. But, but what's really interesting is the way that, if you think about most hobbies, right, you move, generally, your progression is towards a higher and higher level of sophistication, towards more and more demanding play. You know, mm-hmm. if you're into chess, you start out just kind of moving pieces around, and eventually you're using these really high-level strategies. Sure, and sure. the same thing is with video games. It's true with video games, where you start off on, you know, some easy little game, like some simple platformer or something, and sure. you evolve towards playing a game that is more demanding. Maybe something like Demon Souls, where you're letting the game punish you, basically, until you get sure. better at it. It's only in yeah. tabletop RPGs that I've noticed that the more some, the longer someone plays, and the more they get into the act of designing, in addition to the act of playing, the more they become obsessed with making the game simpler and simpler, and easier and yeah. easier to play. Right, and, and more concise, yeah. That was my evolution, too, and I, I don't know what it says about us as hobbyists, but it's it's interesting, anyway. Yeah, definitely. But it makes sense, like, yeah. especially as you get older, right? You want to be uh, more efficient with your time, right. so it makes more sense. Right, absolutely. So I want to pivot now, unless anyone else has any questions about Magicians as a game. Rudy, Alex, you want to talk about that? No, I have nothing about the actual game. Just no, I think we covered. <laughs> anyway, um, so then I will pivot to talking about Kickstarters because this is something that there's been a lot of discussion about lately. We kind sure. of we've touched on it a couple of times recently on the podcast. The question of how do you pitch your game? How do you sell your game? And there seems to be so much frustration in the community. Um, and I hate to pick on Dan Maruse chat because he's such a, like, he's such a, you know, sad kind of, uh, ER character, but he's constantly making posts on Google Plus about his frustration over his inability to successfully 
pitch his game. And more recently, yeah. Steve Mathers, whose game in Janeiro was another game that I really loved when I playtested it. Mm-hmm. He made yeah, a post recently on Starry Games about his frustration with trying to sell in Janeiro. And this seems to be something that especially newer designers, designers from our generation, from your generation and mine and Dan Maruschak and Steve Mathers, the sort of second or third generation, you know, after the Forge people, it seems to be something we really do struggle with is reaching that visibility threshold. Now, you managed to not only reach that threshold, but move well beyond beyond it with magicians to have a hugely successful Kickstarter campaign. So I thought maybe you could give us some insight into how this went down, the process that you went through when you decided you wanted to kickstart the game. Okay. Um, when I wanted to kickstart it, let's see. Well, the main reason, in the beginning, I had no, uh, I didn't want to kickstart it. Like the, the, I didn't even have the thought of it. Um, in the beginning, I just wanted this to be a classroom tool um, that I could use um, as an, um, well as a tool, and I wanted to use it for my thesis because I wanted something kind of new and fresh and cool. And um, like, if you want to do, if you're going to write some paper that has to be a billion pages, you better be something you're interested in. So. Right. Um, in the beginning, I had no desire to do that, but as I got into it and started playing more, and um, I don't know, I just started, I just I started posting it in places like Story Games and the Forge and stuff, and uh, the response was always good. Like it, there wasn't a lot of response, but the response that it got was always people saying like, "This is really cool and unique, and I like it." And, like, it was not like there was, like, even more than five people, I think. But right. the response that it got was but they were uh, encouraging. So, <laughs> pardon? But they were five enthusiastic people. Which yeah, exactly. It's, like, kind of like, you know, uh, those who like it like it a lot. So, you know, that maybe there's this niche within a niche within a niche kind of thing. Um, so I started developing it more. And um, as more, more people got more interested, I noticed that all of these people who were interested in it were very enthusiastic about it. So I thought, you know, maybe this could be a cool thing to really um, get into. And then at one point I just decided to uh, give it my full attention and my effort. And um, I figured, you know, even if it bombs out or something I can use it in my thesis it'll still be cool I can maybe even develop it more later on I'll get some input and then I thought well if I'm going to do this and I'm going to dedicate this amount of time to it I'm going to just do it all the way and if it if it bombs then you know whatever you got to do this at least once and if you're going to do it do it while you're you know young so um, I all of the money I had I rounded up um, I got artwork for it coming in. I talked to, um, I started, um, like I'm a big fan of, um, Daniel Solis and Ryan Macklin. Like I had been listening to his podcast for master plan and stuff. So I was, I, I wouldn't say familiar, but, you know, acquainted with the subject of how to go about some of these things. 
So I talked to Daniel about uh, if I did a Kickstarter, would he be interested in all in this game or something? And he said, um, well, yeah, like if um, it's obviously on the condition that the Kickstarter is funded and stuff, but let's not come up with a contract or anything. But this is a really cool idea. And uh, he was enthusiastic about it. So that was encouraging because he's, you know, he's an industry veteran. He's done a lot of really cool stuff. And then I talked to Ryan Macklin, too, and he's he tends to only get interested in projects that are very, um, I don't know, provocative, I guess. So he was interested, too. So the fact that I was getting all these people on board um, and they were enthusiastic about it only served to um, reinforce my previous thoughts about getting it out there. And, like, with Kickstarter, there's not a lot of risk, too, right? Like, I figure at the very least, I've spent my money, I get artwork, um, I, you know, spend a couple of months learning how to make some basic layouts, I get it out there, and, you know, no harm done. And if the Kickstarter succeeds, then great, I get a professionally done book, I get to put something out there, maybe, you know, maybe there's some ripples, but I never really expected this. So then... You didn't, I'm not sure exactly how to put this, but so you didn't really round up many potential backers in advance then. It's not as if you got, say, 30 of those 250 people or so who have backed you now onto, on, hooked on the project or into backing the project before you put it out there. You did reach out to a couple of key people within the industry, but right. didn't really round up a group of supporters. To, you didn't know what your foundation was before you started. Not really. Like I, like there were some people that were very enthusiastic about it. Definitely. So I thought um, there'll be some people at the very least, and um, maybe I could break even or something like that. But I didn't really. I don't know. Like I, I got a website set up beforehand, but it was mostly just to gather my thoughts and uh, about my the process and what magicians is and that kind of stuff. But I didn't really I didn't really advertise it or like throw up threads all over the place or anything. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just kind of thought, well, we'll see how it goes. I was very casual about it, but I was I thought like. Um, yeah, I thought maybe it could it could do okay, and then yeah, it just started like ballooning and blowing up, and obviously like Ryan Macklin and Daniel Solis have a lot of uh, traction in the community, so right. I'm sure their voices helped a lot, and I think it's probably one of the main things. So is that something you would definitely recommend someone doing before beginning a Kickstarter? Then maybe finding a couple of rather you know, big industry names, not, you know, maybe not huge, but a couple of people who have had successful Kickstarters in the past and reaching out to them to provide something like layout or editorial work or whatever, just so that you have that extra credibility when you do. Oh, definitely. If you're first time, if it's your first time putting something out, I would, I, I almost wouldn't consider it without having some, something behind me like play tests or like all of it finished almost and just kind of like the the hostage system or um yeah i would uh, like some presence in the community 
because especially now that Kickstarter has been around for a while and people, they, like I saw a thread on RPG.net about people, about uh, dissatisfaction with Kickstarter and some of the creators, right. uh, you know, taking too long or getting, I think a couple of them were canceled and that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's something that people are going to become more and more aware of. So I think it's going to become harder and harder for people who are not established uh, to get a foothold in. And one thing I have to say is looking at your Kickstarter, it is very visible how much work you put into the game prior to kickstarting it. It makes it abundantly clear that this game has been playtested. It hasn't just been playtested by you. It's been seen by other people. You know, it's it's received at least the support of a couple of of people who have published games before. And just the right. degree to which you go, you walk people through the game, you know, without giving so much away that they don't want to buy the game, but you really walk them through the game and someone can look at that and say, oh, there is substance here. Mm-hmm. I think having, especially on the Kickstarter, I think having like actual play and I think a lot of people are very reserved about it. Like they think, if I tell them what my system is or if I tell them what my setting is, then they'll just, I don't know, it'll be stolen and printed somewhere else or something like that. But I think that's really the wrong way to go about it. I think you really have to, especially on a Kickstarter, I think you have to put yourself out there as much as you can and just let the chips fall where they may. Right. And I absolutely agree with you there. And I think if you look at the Kickstarter, have been phenomenally successful, like Dungeon World, for example. There are right. games that were either available in their entirety before the Kickstarter was even launched, or had at right. least been played, had been demoed at conventions, had been uh, had been talked about before, where mm-hmm. a chunk of the material that went into the game was otherwise available. Yeah. Whereas for um, I guess reclusive you are, the more standoffish you are about sharing your content, it mm-hmm. seems like the less likely people are to really want to invest in the game. Yeah. And people don't want to, people, I think very few people find like the whole, I have this awesome idea that's going to change everything. It's more of like, for at least in our community, I think it's more like kick finisher, right? Right. It's like, I've got this, it's a thing, it's like playable, we're doing it, I just want to make it pretty and give it to you kind of thing. Right, really, in the indie RPG community, Kickstarter is almost a way to get pre-orders for your game, honestly. Yeah. It's yeah. a way to do a first print run of a finished game. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, determine uh, if you've got like an audience. Right. And that was my goal in the beginning, just to see, like, will people even care about this kind of thing? Rudy, Alex, you want to jump? As far as the uh, the artwork and the layout and stuff like that, now, did you have mm-hmm. all of that pretty much together when you went to Kickstarter, or did you were you kind of in the process of talking to Ryan Macklin and? Uh, um, at that people? time, uh, before the Kickstarter launched, I had already gone into I've already I had already put a substantial amount of my own money uh, I've paid for all the artwork beforehand I've paid I paid for the development editing beforehand with Ryan Macklin 
Um, the only thing I hadn't paid for uh, is the rest of it, right? Obviously, I need the money for the printing and for um, layout uh, design and line editing afterwards and all that, uh, all that stuff. But um, I, th I think it's Daniel Solis as well who said, like, if you want to do a Kickstarter, um, be willing to do like, like put up half the money it would take to do a Kickstarter. So uh, in my case, uh, in my case, I've put in uh, over $3,000 and my goal was 3000 So it was even, it was more than that. Wow, and that's but so like I said, it was just it was it was a risky gamble that just happened to do well. But it but I think it shows like yeah. if you're willing to like put yourself out there that much, and if you're willing to really go out on a limb and uh, you know just really care about quality and content and not sacrifice anything, um, I think people see that, and it uh, it definitely shows. And I think even if you are not able to make the monetary investment beforehand. And I know there are a lot of people who were probably listening to you say that, who maybe got a little discouraged thinking, oh my God, I don't have $3,000, what am I going to do? I think that even if, if you can't make a substantial monetary investment in your project, you have to make a substantial time investment. You have to oh, have yeah. produce something that really resembles a finished work. And maybe you haven't paid for artwork yet. And I know that a lot of people, don't have, um, do not um, order the artwork, do not commission the artwork before beginning the Kickstarter. And, and that's not necessarily something that I think you'd have to do, but you definitely have to be willing to sink a real substantial amount of time into this before you begin yeah. Kickstarter. Yeah. And I would say that's a given. Like, at the very least time, and probably... Um, like at least have uh, something lined up, right? Like have yeah, like, right. if this happens, I've got this artist who's interested in, um, maybe have some like concept sketches. Um, and you, you know, be enthusiastic, have have like a video that, that shows you've put in some effort, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And I think that's something, I think you hit on an important point there when you said have things lined up, be able to say in your Kickstarter, hey, this is the artist that I plan to commission the work from. Hey, this is the guy I plan to commission layout from, and right. so on and so forth. To be able to, so that there's almost the internet equivalent of a paper trail, because mm -hmm. accountability, I think, is very important in Kickstarter as Kickstarter continues to evolve. Definitely. As its transparency continues to increase. Definitely, definitely. Alex, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. Well, I didn't want to be rude and interrupt the engaging conversation that's occurring right now. Okay. Now, I'll ask my question. Okay. Okay. Now, ever since I was a child, I was told to never trust a Kyle spelled with Ks. What sort of measurements are you taking to make sure your plan comes to fruition? Uh, sorry, what was that last bit? <laughs> I said, what sort of measurements are you taking to make sure your plan comes to fruition? Um, what are you doing to guarantee that we will definitely get your game? 
and not okay. like two years from now. <laughs> okay. Okay, sure. Um, well, for one, like I said, um, it's already written. All the artwork's finished. Development editing's almost finished. So all it really needs is me to do a couple more passes of editing with Ryan. Uh, and then it will be, it just goes to line editing, which is also Ryan. Then it goes to Daniel. And these are all people that are awesome at what they do and make a living doing it. And, uh, both of them have a whole bunch of, like Daniel especially has a whole bunch of Kickstarters behind him. Um, like I've got printer, my printer lined up, paper chosen. Uh, everything is pretty much ready to go, um, which I think is necessary for your Kickstarter, too, if people want to do that. On a side note, I have noticed that Kyle's are really misrepresented in media. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you think about it, like, if any time you watch a show like CSI or something like that, if there's, like, a deadbeat or a murderer or something like that, it's always <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> Yes, that's what I was Just looking for. <laughs> that's a good thing. It's, 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 they tend to give it to juvenile delinquents in the media, too. It's kind of like the no, name Ryan. Where if you see a character named Ryan, he's going to be some kind of juvenile delinquent. And yeah. Kyle has the same bad rap. Yeah. Uh, that, that's why I said it as my preemptive question for the first sentence. It's like, yeah. I... <laughs> it's sad, I, really. I know, I'm messed up. <sighs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that uh, yeah. The main reason uh, I wanted to work with Daniel and Ryan in particular is because yeah, they're they've done this before. They had their first rodeo, so and they've helped me so much. Like anytime I've had any question or oh, and one thing I I think is really uh, important to touch on um, before I started my Kickstarter. I don't know if you guys saw, but. I had threads up on uh, storygamesnrpg.net just asking people, like, what do you think about this Kickstarter? It's a preview, so I can change it. So, you know, give me a, the, your harshest criticism you can because I can change it right now and right. I can try and make as many people happy as, as, uh, as possible. And I changed a ton of stuff. Like, people, uh, it, there's just such a great community behind it and people are, like, totally willing to help. Like, I changed money dollar amounts i noticed uh, board tiers uh like graphics the video like all kinds of stuff right i i noticed that i noticed you sent me the preview and i was looking at it and one thing i noticed was originally your goal was six thousand dollars right uh yeah actually the original goal was seven and then i moved it and then I moved it to three. <laughs> right. And my knee-jerk response to that $6,000, and I guess I can sh- say this now that I've been proven wrong, was, wow, that's high. I don't know if he can hit that. Exactly. Well, and that's what many people said. Like, they said, 6000 if you hit it, um, you'll be lucky. And the thing is, um, Kickstarters these days, they, they, they're, they like, um, well, for one, statistics prove that uh, 3,000, 2,000, 3,000 goals are the ones that are most often hit and succeed. But the thing that really scared me was, okay, if I hit 3,000, that means I, not only do I not recoup what I put in, but I have to spend like several more thousand dollars to get it out. And I'm liable to do it. Right. You know? Right. So So that scared the crap out of me. But I did... I wanted to see it succeed, and I thought 
I could get some cool stretch goals in there and maybe get some momentum going. And, uh, yeah, um, like, remember when it first launched? I think you were, like, the second backer or something. I right? was. I wanted to be the first backer, and I, I actually logged in while I was at work. And I saw you posted on your Facebook page. And, yes, I was sitting at work checking my Facebook. But, anyway, I saw it go up, and I was like, yes, I'm going to be the first backer. And then I went into Amazon Payments to pay for it, and I refreshed the page, and some dude had beat me to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, it started off, like, pretty slow. It was doing okay. And then, um, like... When would it? I launched it at 12 my time, so midnight. And then, uh, it started picking up, picking up. And by the time I went to bed at like 4 a.m. and like tried to sleep, um, I think it was already at like 2000. So I was like, holy crap, this is going to be awesome. Right. Um, but I still, I was still pretty reserved. I'm like, okay, yeah, in the beginning, you know, that first few hours, you kind of hit it and then, you know, it just kind of dwindles and, you know, all, all's well that ends well. Um, but I woke up and we were like already past, I think, I think we hit, yeah, we hit 3000 and passed it at like 8 a.m. So it, it was like eight hours to hit the stretch goal. Mm-hmm. Or not the stretch goal, the, the actual goal rather. So. Speaking of stretch goals, let's talk stretch goals. Because you got uh, Jason Morningstar, among others, to contribute to your to contribute a stretch goal. Is yeah. that something that you commissioned prior to starting the Kickstarter? And what well, no. Uh, I Like I said, I didn't really even think I'd need it. <laughs> right. um, but once I saw things starting to take off, I'm like, okay, I'd better have something lined up just in case. Um at the very least, I knew that I could put out some packs myself, uh, some cards myself. So I was like, okay, nothing to worry about. But I also wanted to get some enthusiasm going on and um, generate that momentum and, uh, you know, keep it going. So I um, I reached out to Jason, who is, who was, yeah, he was like totally responsive. He was just like, yeah, this is something I can do. And like you guys know, it's not like it requires tons of time to make a card pack, right? right? right. So, so he was like, yeah, this is awesome. And to, he even like, um, he actually went pretty in depth. Like he, he like researched a bunch of stuff about Korea. Like the card pack's totally Korean themed and everything. It's, wow. It was really cool. Yeah, Jason Morningstar is the man when it comes to research. I've never seen anything that he's produced that hasn't been just extensive, doesn't have extensive historical research behind it, a really solid historical cultural foundation, which I think is a lot of the appeal of his work, in addition to just how um, accessible his mechanics are. But research really is almost the word of the night, I think. If uh, we were to ask WordBird what the word of the day is, I think it is research. Ah! Oh, I'm like, <laughs> dude, did you watch Fred Penner's Place too, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think that the major takeaway here is really do your research before you begin. Really look closely at the process. Look at what other people have done. Be very receptive to criticism. Be very receptive to advice. 
Definitely. And not necessarily in a way that lets people change what your vision for the game is, but certainly in a way that let, that leaves you flexible about how you are pitching the game, how you are mm-hmm. presenting and promoting the game. Does that does that sound about right? Yeah. And be as clear and concise about what you want mm-hmm. your game to do as you can. Like, um, <coughs> don't try to... Like, you're obviously not going to make everyone happy. And, like, I think the real goal is to make something for yourself, and if people like it, that's awesome. Right? Like, make a game that you want to play. Rudy? Um, I don't think... I think you pretty much covered uh, most of what I was going to ask. Because I know you and I, Rudy and I, have been talking Kickstarter lately. We've reached a point with Misery Tourism Games where we have a lot of content up there and available. And mm-hmm. we're starting starting to think about shifting gears between the production of content and the promotion of content. You know, And how we, we are going to get that content out to a larger audience. And it seems like Kickstarter is kind of the thing to do. And we, we're thinking about doing a collection of mm-hmm. 10 to 12 games, maybe, using the games that are already available on the site. So that is something mm-hmm. we've been discussing. So I thought maybe Rudy had some question related to that or something that was on his mind. No, it would definitely be a cool thing to do. Yeah, we were, um, we were thinking of kind of transitioning to it in the new year, I guess. Um, but... One thing I, I was kind of wondering is what, when you do your, um, what do they call it, award goals or whatever? Or, uh, uh, stretch goals? Uh, not stretch goals, the little things on the side. The, uh, oh, the rewards, yeah. Rewards, yeah. Um, what, uh, how, how did you come up with those? I mean, how did you, how did you kind of work those into something that would mm-hmm. be interesting for your project, your, you know, your personal? Right. Um, the first thing I did, Okay, the first thing I did for rewards is I did a lot of research on just statistics and how much people spend and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the what you really want to go for is, which is pretty common, I guess, for our games these days, at least indie ones, like uh, something for $10, which is usually your PDF, um, and then hit like a $20 level, a $60 level, and then like have some higher backer rewards kind of things. And so I looked at those levels and I was like, okay, what can I offer people that they would actually want to spend money on at these levels? And, uh, well, it was pretty easy because I live in Korea and there's lots of cool stuff that you can't really get. And then, um, uh, yeah, so the first thing I hit on was the T-shirts because I had my family visited Korea recently and they were, uh, my dad loved these t-shirts and it's kind of big here in Korea too, especially in Busan, which is so close to Japan. Um, those, the shirts on the site are actually, um, Japanese ones, but they're huge here. So I was like, okay, well I can do that. I can offer it to people and I can do it a lot cheaper because I checked the site in uh, the States and they're selling them for like 80 bucks a piece. So um, I figured I could do that. Maybe people could save some money on it and they get something cool. Because originally I was, you know, a lot of the RPGs do Kickstarters, but our uh, RPG Kickstarters do t-shirts rather. Mm-hmm. So, um, but 
you know, no one really wears those shirts, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to spend uh, 30 bucks on a shirt I'm going to wear when I, you know, go to bed, and that's about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I was like, why not get some them something cool? And, uh, and, yeah, so I went from there, and then I looked at the game, uh, what I could use in the game, uh, some... So I came up with those coins, those tokens that you can use for drama points. Or people could use, you know, really for anything as tokens or points or whatever you want to do in other games, too. So I figured that would be cool. And then um, in the game setting, I've got um, um, these beads that students wear that are magically infused, and that's what allows them to like see or like bypass the spells that protect the school and hide it from view and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I just came up with that idea for the setting because I have a set of these cool Buddhist beads and uh, I knew that I could get them in Korea. So I was like, that'd be a, a cool little thing. Um, they're not too expensive. They're um, light enough that I could ship it together and it wouldn't really hurt me too much because Shipping was something I really had to consider because everything was going overseas and it was, yeah. and I the I wanted the book to not be too expensive, uh, because, man, do I know not what not having money is like. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I wanted it to be reasonable, and I also wanted it to be available anywhere because every time I go on Kickstarter. Everyone's like, okay, you gotta add fifteen bucks. You gotta add ten bucks right. to get it anywhere else instead of the states. So I was just like, oh crap. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of the thought process came from my use of Kickstarter. Uh, mm. What I liked in other Kickstarters, what I would buy, uh, my process, uh, my uh, what I thought about shipping, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably closing in on an hour here. I don't know, Alex, you're probably watching the clock. Uh, sure. I mean, I guess. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Thank <Maybe>. you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is an hour and 13. We probably were chatting for at least 10 minutes beforehand, you know, saying, you know, quite nothings in each other's ears, and we started, so. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think... I don't know, any sort of last questions, anything that's been playing around in people's minds while they've been listening to this conversation? Anything people want to mention? Alex? Nothing related to the actual subject, no. But? (laughs) Well, you guys got to let me know if you decide to do a Kickstarter for sure, because that's something I'd definitely be interested in. Great, great. Well, do you have any advice? I mean... You've seen the site, right? You've seen the game. Mm-hmm. Any mm-hmm. advice on how we can pitch this thing? Uh, in terms of pitching it, I really like the idea of a pack. Just because it's, you know, value for money. And uh, you guys hit on, like, a really wide range of topics. So I think you're going to appeal to, like, I think at least a few of the games are going to appeal to everyone. So I think it's a good idea. And if you present it, um, well in a Kickstarter page. It really shows. Okay. Well, thanks, Kyle. Uh, Rudy, do you have anything you wanted to ask him before? Nope. Nope. Okay, well, I think 
that about does it then. Thanks a lot, Kyle, for sitting down and talking to us, even after your Kickstarter had gone well past the point of funding. Uh, if you are one of our three or four or maybe even five listeners <laughs> and you're listening to this and you haven't backed Magicians yet, just go on our website. We're going to have a link up there with this post to the Kickstarter. Do it. I mean, we've played the game. You've, talk, you've heard Kyle talk. You've heard that he can definitely deliver on this thing. And uh, if you don't trust Kyle, I mean, you must trust us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but honestly, though, this is another instance where someone is doing something really innovative, really effective, and really fun. And it's definitely worth, I think, if nothing else, it's worth the $9 for the PDF. But I think it's absolutely worth going in for the soft cover copy of the book so that you can hold this thing in your hands. <laughs> okay. So I think that about does it then. Uh, thank you, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. And Alex, are you ready to unplug the microphone? <laughs> <laughs>